You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you haven't turned already in your Bible to Mark chapter 3, please do that or grab a phone and turn to Mark chapter 3. This week we're talking about family in the kingdom. And I don't know if you ever had this experience. Um, I've got a picture actually in my office. It's, it's kind of like a family photo. Um, Liz and I are standing there and the kids are kind of in the background. It's meant to be this beautiful picture, right? You, you want to capture family photos. You want to capture the best moment. I just remember, though, that that day was pretty chaotic, okay? And the, the time to actually take the picture didn't go that smooth. We tried a couple of different locations. Somebody was crying. I think I was frustrated in the moment. But the picture captures it, right? Just perfection. Everybody looks like they're in bliss. And that's what a photograph, especially a family photograph, we don't tend to keep the ones that are like all of us wringing each other's necks, right? We want the great picture. We want the perfect picture. And sometimes we even buy into the illusion that that's what it's like. And maybe we're, you know, coming to a passage like this where Jesus begins to talk about family and we think like, You know, we need to have a word to the parents to be able to do a better job at parenting. Or maybe we need to have a word for the kids that need to do a better job of obeying. And we probably need all of that. But what we're going to notice today in the passage is that Jesus actually doesn't go into that level of family teaching. There's other places in scripture where he does that. What Jesus does actually is give for the audience and for us reading here a new vision of what the family is all about. A vision that actually fits into the kingdom of God. And, and what Mark is doing here in this passage from, from verses 20 to 35 is he's doing, I had to write it down here because I don't know this word, he's doing a intercalation. Okay, got that one down? He's doing an intercalation. Try and use that in a sentence sometime this week. But basically what Mark is doing is he's taking three elements here and he's doing what you could call just a Markin sandwich, okay? So he's got like two pieces of bread at the beginning and the end and the, the really good stuff is in the middle, okay? The really important stuff is in the middle, so there's, which works great for a, for a pastor because you got your three points right there, okay? But he's going to start with the bread, he's going to go into the meat, and then he's going to end with the bread again, okay? So that's what Mark is doing, and that's how he wants to get the point of this passage across, is by making this little Mark sandwich so that we understand the real important stuff is in the middle, okay? But we're going to start here with the bread, and we just heard it read to us, but let's read those verses again, and, and you can... Again, look at them yourself with your own eyes. Verse 20 says this. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. That's Jesus and his, the team of the disciples that are with him. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So what we see here in this first section is that Jesus goes home. Okay, either to his home area, hometown kind of area, He is going back to his home. And often when we think about Jesus, or maybe this is just me, but we tend to think like he was in this perfect kind of family. Like he's Jesus, so he's perfect. So his family must be perfect. Everything's just hunky-dory and really great. But when you think about the life of Jesus, 
Think about all the things that happened to him in his lifetime. Most of those things, if we had one of them happen to us, they would be traumatic for our family. Like they would leave deep marks for you as a person. So you think of the the Christmas story, and we're going to get into that in about a month here, right? All the things that happened to Jesus where he is um, literally on the run because people are trying to kill him. And so there's like this bloodbath in Bethlehem that he just escapes and is able to get away from. And then Jesus is in his young age um, a refugee in North Africa, in Egypt, as he goes to Egypt with his family. And then there's a few years spent there till all the kind of um, craziness around his arrival settles down and then they come back to Israel, back into this place that they kind of are familiar with, but not completely. Totally, their lives are turned upside down. And then you've got Jesus himself who's like this, um, one, of the, like, one story where he's just this prodigy, right? He's in the temple, he's answering all the questions, he's there, he's not hanging out with the other kids, let's just say that. In the only story we got when he's kind of like this middle-aged little kid, um, he's hanging out with the priests, he's answering like rabbinical questions, he's not playing whatever they're playing on the side. He is, I don't know if you'd call him like a prodigy or if he's got like Asperger's, like who knows what he all had, okay? But he is in the thick of like deep conversations with religious leaders. What's his family thinking about all that? We, who knows, right? But they're, they're seeing this happen for, before them. And then Jesus goes into full-time ministry, Right at the age of 30, he says, it's time for me to go. And he is on the road throughout the nation. He is healing people. He is doing all kinds of things. This is the life of Jesus. It is like full of um, difficulty, full of hardship, full of like strange things as well. Like you could just see people in the community there who would have known this family thinking like, man, these guys, they got a crazy older brother. He do, he's doing all kinds of stuff. Besides the fact that he thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks he is the one who's been sent by God to, to resolve all of our issues and to bring about all the promises that God has been saying for hundreds and hundreds of years. And this is the world that Jesus was growing up into. And in John chapter 7, verse 3, it says this, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, for one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It's, it's, it's an interesting bit of advice they give him. They're like, okay, go do your thing. Because verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers believed in him. So his own family, they're kind of giving him advice because they're family, they got to do that. But there's no belief in what Jesus is actually teaching. There's no belief in what Jesus is actually doing. They are probably confused by everything that's happening. And so here we come to Mark 3 verse 20 and we see that Jesus is not in this perfect family. And the vision actually the vision that we're given as God's people is not the vision of here is your perfect family that you should have. Although we all probably want that. We want to have the, the perfect family that is not just a photograph on your office wall, but it's, it's photograph represents the reality of what it is, this perfectness, this perfection. And we, we live in a world also 
all of us do, that seeks that kind of perfection. Whether you're by yourself as an individual, you know, on Instagram, or maybe um, in a broader sense, if you have a, you know, a husband or a wife, or maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or broader than that when we have our kids, or even further than that when you have your grandkids. I'm not sure if like your great-grandparents are into Instagram, but you know, it goes pretty far and deep that everybody is posting pictures and wants to have this image of the perfect family. And I'm just here to remind all of us the, the obvious plain truth, and maybe even to give you like a little bit of relief, that is not your calling. The perfect family is not the, the kingdom vision that God has for you and for me. Now we want to love our kids, we want them to do well, but the pressure of having a, a family that fits the mold of what the world would say is perfect will ultimately crush us and will be a burden that we won't be able to bear. And it's not something that we're actually given in Scripture. And so we see here Jesus himself kind of models this idea of living in an imperfect situation and an imperfect family. And here in the story, they come to him. And, and it says in the ESV, in verse 21, it says they come to seize him, which literally means they've come to arrest him. Okay, they want to come and take him. And whether or not this is his immediate family or maybe his clan, like his people, the people in his neighborhood who knew him, but their motivation may even have been good things. It's kind of hard to tell from the texture, but all that we see from the text is that they went to go get him because they were worried, you see at the end of verse 20, that, you know, he couldn't even eat. Like Jesus is so busy, he's doing so much ministry, he's doing so many things, he can't even eat. So let's assume that the family actually cares for Jesus. They're actually there to help him. They're seeing, you know, we saw last week that Jesus had to set up like a perimeter because he was almost going to be crushed by the crowds. And so his clan is seeing this and they're like, okay, this has gone far enough. This whole Messiah thing, he's not eating. He's almost getting crushed. We need to step in here. This is like an intervention. We need to do something, take care of Jesus because this is going off the rails and they're coming for him. And so this idea of your family, your immediate family, your nuclear family, maybe your parents, maybe your brothers and sisters, it's possible at times when you make choices in the direction of the kingdom of God that they will, out of various motivations, could be love, could be concern, they could actually come to you not fully understanding what is happening in your life and what the Holy Spirit is actually leading you into. The kingdom of God is a calling of suffering. The kingdom of God is a calling of sacrifice. The kingdom of God is a calling of following the Holy Spirit. And not every family member will understand you when you make those decisions. And I can tell you, as a father even, it never takes great, it's never great joy for me to see my children in pain or in sacrifice or in struggle. My instant urges to try to solve the problem, to get them out of that. And so to see then someone make choices towards the kingdom of God that actually brings them closer to suffering and sacrifice, you can see how a family, a family that's believing or a family that is not believing would just struggle against that, would fight against that. 
And so it says that Jesus lived in this kind of complicated world. He lived with this family around him that either understood him or didn't understand him. And Isaiah puts it beautifully, Isaiah 53, this, this text on the suffering servant. And I, I pulled it out of the paraphrase, the message. It says this, when describing Christ, it says, The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. So, when it comes to your life, to the, to the complication of your life, let me just tell you, Jesus understands what's, what that is. Jesus understands what it means to live in a family where it's divided. So we see that Jesus talks about, and we get a little glimpse here into the, the, the bread part of the family, this first section, and now Mark kind of moves into the meat section, okay? This second part where we see actually the challenge that comes from the city. So look at verse 22. We won't read this whole section again, but verse 22 says this. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. So this is the first time in our story here in Mark where we see some leaders, some big-time religious figures coming to Jesus. They leave Jerusalem. They've been hearing about this. The word of Jesus' ministry has been spreading. We talked about it last week. People from the south, from the east, from the north, they've all been coming. This is the first time where the religious leaders now come and they want to see what is this you know, new teacher teaching? What does he have for us? And they hear what he's done and they see the crowds that he's drawing and they're their instant, their, their natural reaction is just to challenge what Jesus is doing. So they come to challenge him, and they say this. Essentially what they're saying is this. Jesus is a tool of Satan. This rabbi, this new teaching, is actually from the house of Beelzebul, and it is satanic in nature, and that's what this is all about. They're trying to like squash this, right? They're trying to end it as quickly as possible because Jesus wasn't the only, you know, guy who came along saying he was the Messiah. So they're like, here's another one. Let's just smush this and get this over with. Sometimes Jesus, we see him in his teaching, ignores the religious leaders. He's just like, forget it. Waste of my time. Not even going to do it. At other times, he kind of questions back, not giving any answers, just kind of questioning them back, kind of that rabbinic rhetorical language back to them. But in this case, Jesus actually senses a moment here. And Mark records for us that Jesus in this moment responds to them. Maybe the circumstance was right. Maybe the questioning was just the kind of questioning where Jesus could come back and in a clear, kind of rational way, explains to them the folly of their challenge to him. Whatever it was, what we know as we've looked through the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus at all points in his ministry is just in tune and is in line with the Holy Spirit and is able to do at the right time, in the right moment, exactly what needs to be done. 
And in this moment, he comes and he responds to them. He gives them actually a reasoned response through three parables. And we won't look at them all. We just don't have the time to look into the detail of them. But the first and the second are really similar, right? They are talking about a kingdom that's divided and a house that's divided. Jesus says, how is this possible? If I am a worker of Satan, if I am a worker of the house of Beelzebul, how is it that I am coming to cast out demons from my own house? It's kind of like if Jesus, you know, if he lived in our modern day, it would be like if you talked about like soccer or hockey. It'd be like saying to a team that the goal for them to win the game is to score as many goals as possible in their own net. Jesus is like, that doesn't make any sense at all. For Satan to cast out his own demons. So he uses those first two parables to kind of just basically, you know, with this rational argument, explain to them how what they're saying doesn't work. And then the third one he gives is this parable of a strong man. And saying how if you want to... Um, enter into a home as a thief and you want to take all the stuff that the strong man has, what you need to do is first of all, bind that strong man. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, the person that is being bound is actually Satan. Satan is the strong man in the parable. And the work that Jesus was doing was tying up, was binding up the strong man so that he could free people from the captivity that they're in. And so Jesus is using these examples to try to discredit their argument. He actually takes the opportunity to do that right in front of them, right before them. Because the question that they are really driving at, and the question that we need to be aware of in this text today, and the question that is at the heart of this Markin sandwich is, who is Jesus? That is a question that is the most important question for any of us to answer. For anybody on the planet really to answer is, who is Jesus? As you look at his life and as you see the work that he's done, who are you left with? Is this the person that he says he is or is this somebody else? And it's still a question that is valid for all of us today. As we come here and we sit here, some of us are you know, we would say we are believers. Others of us are maybe like, I'm in like a searching category. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I don't really know what to do with Jesus yet. But that's why we're actually looking at the Gospel of Mark together. To say, we want to answer the most important question of our lifetime. What do we do with this person, Jesus? How do we make sense of him? C.S. Lewis, who... Many of you know he's probably one of the most famous Christian intellectuals in the last century, was a hardened atheist. He grew up as a young boy in a family that kind of knew religion, knew God, and when he was nine years old, his mother passed away, and it was devastating to him. It was also totally disorienting for his father, and his father had he just didn't know what to make sense of the world anymore without his wife. And so he sent C.S. Lewis and his brother to private schools. And that was kind of the end of the relationship. And the experience for Lewis of going to a private school was terrible. Okay, it did not go well. And in that season, he came to discover that he actually had to believe in God if he wanted to pray for God to listen to him. And he came to the conclusion of, that's a waste of time. And so he became a hardened atheist. 
And throughout his young adult life, through school, junior high, into college, hardened atheist, identified with atheism and loved it. And, and slowly, as he was a professor in Oxford and Cambridge, he began to interact with some individuals and they would go to the, to the pubs and they would have conversations and they would talk about books and stories. And you're probably familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien, who was one of them. And it was through those relationships, through those conversations, that Lewis began to understand a couple things. One was this that there were actually intelligent, brilliant people that he respected who believed in some sort of God. Maybe they were deists, or maybe many of them were even Christians who believed in the God of the Bible. And then he also began to discover that he himself was slowly being drawn into a desire to know and follow Jesus, which ultimately ended with him proclaiming his faith in Christ. And there's this quote that many of you know, that many of you have seen it, you've been looking at it already, that goes like this. C.S. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Here came C.S. Lewis to this point in his own life, through interacting with people who followed Christ, through rational and intellectual debate and through even this creative mind that he had, he came to understand answering this question of who Jesus is is the greatest question of our lifetime. And this is the exact question that the, script, the, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees were trying to, to kind of knock the legs out from under so that nobody would actually put their trust and hope. Lewis goes on to say this, he says, now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This was Lewis's conclusion. Throughout of his life, through the ups and downs of great belief and great question and doubt, Lewis came back to this point of understanding that Jesus was actually who he said he was. And so in this attempt here by the religious leaders to knock out the legs of this new rabbi, they actually are doing the work of Satan without even knowing it. And Jesus is able to stand there and take these, these demands and take these questions and able to give answers and to continue on with his work and ministry. And then we come to these interesting and kind of difficult verses in verses 28 through 30. This is still, remember, in the context of this middle part, understanding who Jesus is. And in verse 28, it says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But it, is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So 
right here, Jesus kind of pauses and Mark records for us this type of sin that is of great effect. And many commentators, I mean, you read commentators on this and they're like, man, we don't really know what to do with this little verse. We don't know how to handle this thing. It's a little bit confusing because it seems opposite of what the Bible actually says. The Bible says that Jesus came to forgive sins, all sins, right? Remember John 3.16? Most Christians know that one, the sins of the world. It's like he covers all of them. So, like, what is this? What's happening in verse 28 through 30? What is going on? And it is slightly confusing, okay? Let's be honest about it. Some kind, sometimes we come to the text and we're like, this is confusing. This is difficult. But there's a few things for us to note, okay? And I just want to leave you with a few thoughts here when it comes to these verses. The first one is this. This is not a single act that they are doing. It is a habitual choice and an attitude. And that's really important. Okay, Jesus is coming to them, seeing that this is not just like one thing that they kind of like stumbled into. Suddenly they're like upon his teaching and they are against it. And Jesus is like, ah, I caught you. There's this one kind of sin that never gets forgiven and you just did it. You're done. You're out. That is not what he is saying here. He's saying, you can see it at the, the last little phrase there. He says, um, for they have been saying he has an unclean spirit. So there is this like, regular attitude that is coming up in their thinking and in their minds that is disqualifying Jesus, okay? So this is not a one, t- this is not something that you just kind of like accidentally stumble into and you like think something and you say something and suddenly you're like, oh no, I'm in that category of now, of unforgiven sin, I'm done, it's over. That's not how it works. And the second one is this. It was actually committed by scholars and religious authorities, Okay, and I don't think that that limits it only to counting in this group, but that's really important for us to understand. These are people who had access to, who regularly studied the scriptures, who knew it well, and who were now in the process of rejecting it. Piece by piece, piece by piece, rejecting it. So these were people who were regularly in the scriptures, teachers of the law. And then lastly, is this, that what they are doing is actually being uh, warned. We actually see that in this, in these verses, Jesus is not making a conclusive statement. He's actually giving them a warning. He's saying, here's what you should know. When you knowingly, over and over and over again, reject the, the truth of the work of Christ, the truth of the work that God is doing, In the end, if you reject it, God will actually honor what you reject. God will actually allow you to do that. But what we're seeing here is that God's grace is extended in a warning. And the the beautiful thing about God's grace, you can see this throughout the scriptures from the Old Testament right to Revelation. The beautiful thing of God's grace is it tends to go way further than we think it should go. It tends to go way further. We think... You know, the line should be here. We would draw the line there. But when it's God drawing the line, he just moves it further. And sometimes in in the Old Testament, we see this multiple times. God puts the line there, and then for some reason, he moves it further again. And then sometimes he moves the line further again. His grace is just so far. And so in this 
passage here, these couple of verses that are really hard to handle, what we see actually is the grace of God. Another warning. Even to these religious leaders, he's trying to say, I'm, I'm pushing the line further back here. Don't cross it. When you cross it, your choice will stand, but don't cross it. So we see, we see this family image in Jesus' immediate family. We see it even in the city context here with the religious leaders. And now let's come to the last section here, the kingdom of God. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Okay, what's happening here is finally like his immediate family comes to him. And they say, okay, we need to take care of business. And everybody's like, hey Jesus, your mom's out there. Like now it's gone like next level, right? Your mom is here, dude. Have you seen her? And Jesus is like, I haven't seen her because he's inside doing his ministry and work. But now it's come to the immediate family, the close-knit relationships. Last weekend I watched a, a documentary about the Israeli removal of settlers from the Gaza region in 2005. I don't know if you remember when that happened. Part of the peace process was for all the settlers to be removed from Gaza and the Palestinian Authority would take over that complete land. And so Israel, the army of Israel, had to do something in it that it's never done in its history before. It actually had to carry out operations, not, not violent operations, not military operations, but operations against its own people to remove them from Gaza. And in this documentary, you can just see the, the pain and the horror in the settlers' eyes as they see Israeli soldiers. Some of the Israeli soldiers literally live in settlements. But because it's their duty as an Israeli soldier to do this, this order that has been given to them, they go in to take these settlers out. And the settlers, they give them actually an opportunity. They gave them a couple of days to, to plead with these soldiers, to get up in their faces. And you know what they were saying? You are Jewish family. How can you do this to us, your Jewish brothers and sisters? Because all they could appeal to in that moment, they knew that the courts had done their work. They knew that, you know, everything had been completed that could be done. The only thing that they could come to now was like, this is our, this is the greatest weapon we have, family connection. And this is what's happening in this moment is Mary, Jesus' mother, his brothers. Again, let's, the benefit of the doubt, and probably the text would say that they're coming in love. They're worried about Jesus. Again, he's not eating well. He is, you know, all kinds of people around him. And here they come now. And even everybody else is saying, Jesus, your family is at the door. It's gone next level. And in that context, in that context where the next level of family, clan, culture, top priority, those are the people you listen to, into that, Jesus gives us a vision for the family in the kingdom of God. It's a new kind of vision that goes beyond the vision that we are used to. And this should hit us in a couple ways because we tend to, 
land on either ditch. We tend to land on family neglect, and maybe neglect is the wrong word, but family neglect where we have totally bought into this individualistic lifestyle where, you know, our choices, my choices as an individual, maybe our choice as a couple or our choice as a family, like those are the, those are the only important decisions that ever need to be made. We can land in that ditch or we're not really going to listen to anybody else, but we are the sole source of our own wisdom. Or we land on the other side where it's just a different form of, rather than neglect, it's actually a form of family narcissism where everything that matters all the good that is ever experienced, anything that is positively experienced is going to happen within the context of my family. It's this kind of like family narcissism where the family ends up becoming an idol. Kent Hughes puts idolatry this way. He says, every earthly loyalty, if it is made central, becomes idolatry and all idolatries eventually destroy their worshipers. And so the desire to make our family, our idol, is great. It's huge. And it makes sense because they're around us all the time. So you can either hate it or you can just love it. And you make it idol in your life. And Kent Hughes is saying what the scripture says often is that that will ultimately end in your own ruin. And so Jesus gives us a new view. But please hear me clearly here, okay? What I'm not saying is that Jesus' teaching removes negates or abrogates the family teaching in scripture. We are called to care for our families. We're called to lead our families. Jesus, even when he's hanging on the cross, makes sure that his mother is cared for and taken care of as an oldest son. Elders, their qualifications is to manage their households well. Okay, so that is all still the truth. But, but over and above that, Jesus here gives us a vision for the kingdom of God and the family within it. And it's these two things. We'll end with this. The first is this, that it is marked with family language. Okay, so he says this in verse 33. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. He says, Listen, these are the people around me They might not be my biological siblings, but they are actually my family. They are the people that I am calling my group because I want to be around them, be with them, and know them. And so this is actually what we're called to. We're called to know each other and experience with each other a family relationship. Kenda Dean, who's an author, and she's also a professor at Princeton. She's written a number of books on, you know, raising children with the idea of how do you pass on to them a faith so that they can grow. She writes this. She says, first, their parents have walked through their own faith challenges and remained faithful to God through those difficulties. And then the second is that the child has no less than five adult Christians in their life who love them care, and install a commitment to Jesus into them. Okay, now I didn't put this quote up here so you can calculate. You're like, okay, my kids need five. That's the magic number. They've got, mm, they got bomb, they got, you know, I got, oh no, we got four. You know, I need a fifth here. Who's the fifth, okay? This is not meant to be a um, perfect algorithm for us, okay? 
what I want you to actually catch is actually the last phrase that I didn't even read. Here's what people need, and here's what kids need, and here's what you and I need. We need a tribe. We need a family. We need people who will go a further distance than we would even expect that they would go because we're committed together to the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus is saying. What he's bringing together is a new vision. It is family like people have never experienced before. And so that believers who are new to this community, people who are not saved but then come into this community, begin to experience this family relationship. And so in our missional family, in the last six months, uh, we've had three babies born. We've got three kids in our missional family, which is super exciting. And um, I don't know if I'm the only one feeling this. I should ask other people in my missional family. But I, like, feel some sort of attachment to these babies, okay? I'm, like, looking at pictures on WhatsApp. I'm starting to feel like I'm an uncle or something, right? I'm, like, showing these pictures off to people and just, like, loving the fact that I get to know these kids that, that I'm in their tribe, I'm in their tribe. I'm, I'm with them for this journey of however many years that God gives us together. And this is the calling of God's people and, and that many people have actually never experienced in church, but something that we want to know and experience is this kingdom family together. So he, we're marked by, this language is marked by family language. And then lastly, it's marked by doing the will of God together. See that? Look again at the, at the text one last time. Verse 35, the last verse, says this. When he's talking about this new kingdom family, it's for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Those are the people that I call brother, sister, and mother. We tend to, in our modern day, especially today, we tend to divide by affinity group. So, you know, it's maybe it's politics, or maybe it's your view on this certain issue, or maybe it's the job that you have, or maybe it's your, your you know, gender is a big thing for you, or maybe it's even like you're a Star Wars person, okay, or you're like a Maple Leafs fan. Like, we tend to have some sort of category to, to get with the people who are like us. And this is saying, here's the markers that you should be looking for as a member of God's family in the kingdom of God, the markers are people who do the will of God. And what does that look like? On a basic level, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. Or you go to Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. You know, we have the luxury of debating over all kinds of things in the Christian world. We have the luxury of having, you know, 20, 30,000 denominations. Jesus here is saying, here's your baseline. Here's where you, like, starting point for believers gathering together is, are these things, is the will of God present in your life? Is the work of the Spirit present in your life? Those are the things that bring us together. And so this vision is often um, hard to see 
because we don't see like the totality of it. It's hard for us to experience. And so the book of Revelation was actually meant to be a book of encouragement. Okay, you might not realize that. The book of Revelation was meant to be a book of encouragement that shows you the full vision of what God is doing. And at the end, in Revelation chapter 5, we get this glimpse that we are called to hold on to as a word of hope because this kingdom family is messy because the deal with family is you experience the joys, right? So our missional family, we got Nola, Mason, Anna. This is the joys of it. But also it comes with the pain. It comes with someone like hurting you. It comes with someone saying something weird to you. All that comes with it. It's family. All the good and the bad. It all comes with it. And so that's why our hope is like up and down. And in Revelation 5, we get this vision. This is the concluding picture. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll, Jesus, and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this vision of the family in the kingdom of God. And Lord, I just pray that you would prepare each of us, the households that we live in, the the homes that we inhabit, Lord, may they be places where you build your kingdom through us and through your family as it's expanding throughout Elmira here and all the towns that are represented and even globally, Lord, as we think about those who don't even know Christ, don't even know Jesus exists at all yet, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and that you would build it through your family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.